Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dear Christian friends, it's probably safe that if most students are back in school at this point, if they're not yet, then very soon they will be, which means, of course, homework, studies, projects, and of course, the classroom wouldn't be the classroom without rules, would it? Rules, whether you like them or not, are kind of an important thing. They make sure that everything runs smoothly in a classroom so that people know what the students know, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, so that learning can happen without disruption. And inevitably, one of the, the challenges with rules is being a, a new student who is unfamiliar with either a new teacher or a new classroom. That student has to learn the rules. But the upside is that generally, if there are some returning students, among those students, there will be a few of them who are more than happy to point out all of the rules to the new students. And maybe remind them every time they forget about a rule or every time that they break a rule. So there are those who need to learn the rules, who, who need to know what they are, and then there are those who are happy to point them out to everybody else. As we consider the Pharisees this morning, into which of those two categories do you think they would fall? I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count. I think we all know the Pharisees were the ones who liked to point out the rules, weren't they? In fact, they have a reputation for doing that very thing. You see, there were rules, the Pharisees knew them, and they expected that everybody else should know the rules as well. And the reason that they operated, or one of the ways that they operated, was shown in our text this morning. In Mark's Gospel, we have a divine uh, glimpse of how they operated, an example of their rule-keeping. The Pharisees and all the Jews... They do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. There was a right way, the Jewish way, to do things. And if anybody was not doing anything the, the right way, the Jewish way, then the Pharisees saw themselves essentially as superheroes, spiritually swooping in to guide everybody else and, and correct and show them the rules. So I suppose it came as a surprise to absolutely no one when we know that about the Pharisees, of their exchange, the question they raised before Jesus, also recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So they saw somebody who wasn't doing the right thing, and they saw their responsibility as correcting them, showing them the right way, the Jewish way, to follow the rules, to wash their hands. Now, in this context, we probably can presume that there's a little bit more to it. Because the Pharisees weren't just interested in showing everybody the rules, 
But notice this was a unique opportunity because these weren't just any disciples, were they? These were Jesus' disciples. And for them to catch Jesus' disciples not doing what any good Jewish person would do, well, that would reflect poorly on Jesus, wouldn't it? How could he expect any sort of pristine reputation with these kind of disciples? This motley crew, not washing their hands, not being ceremonially clean. And so their, their take on it was if they could discredit the disciples, then they would also impugn the reputation of their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus. Of course, Jesus saw right through them, didn't he? In fact, he made a, a very clear connection for them through the words of the prophet Isaiah that Mark records for us. Jesus said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And, and he didn't leave anything up to chance, did he? He didn't pull any punches. He made it very clear that it was you hypocrites that Isaiah had in mind when he condemned their behavior. And what was their behavior? He said, you're more concerned with the outward things than you are with the inward. That you are more inclined to exchange God's divine decree for man's tradition. To replace God's guidance with man's hypocrisy. Probably good for us to, to take a moment to distinguish the different ways that we use that terminology when we're talking about hypocrisy. You probably, from experience, have been called a hypocrite. You tell somebody to do one thing, and then they see you doing that very thing, or not doing that very thing, and they accuse you of being a hypocrite. You said you should do this, but then you turn around, you don't do that very thing. That's, that's being a hypocrite. Well, there's a little bit of a distinction in the way that Scripture uses the word. While that is acting hypocritically, that's different from being a hypocrite. See, hypocrite in its ancient roots was used to refer to the person who was a stage performer. A hypocrite was what we call today an actor or an actress. Somebody who was playing the part. Somebody who was pretending to be somebody else. So when Jesus calls somebody a hypocrite, He's not just pointing out one instance where, yeah, their actions didn't match their words. He's saying they are, and these Pharisees were, false believers. That they were pretend believers. What they seemed to exude on the outside didn't match what was in the inside. What came off their lips was not an accurate reflection of what was in their hearts. And Jesus didn't hesitate to point that out to them. Another way maybe to make the distinction here is to see the problem the way the Pharisees did. See, when they looked at the disciples' behavior, they figured it was just a matter of correcting their outward wrongs. So if they were to get to the heart of the problem, it was simply a matter of correcting their behavior. Wash your hands. Follow the traditions of the elders. Jesus corrected them, though. He said the heart of the problem is this, that the heart is the problem. 
In fact, it's not just a, a concern of the outward external behavior or lack of obedience, but really that's merely a symptom of the bigger problem, what is inside everybody. Mark said it this way, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Not just from the outside. In fact, they're a reflection of what's in our heart. And what's in our heart, Jesus points out, is not pretty. We're rotten to the core. There's a, a neat illustration, I think, from, from nature that kind of helps us grasp what Jesus is saying. If you've ever bitten into, I hope this isn't you, but, but if you've ever bitten into an apple and found a worm, or worse yet, half a worm, um, perhaps you concluded something about that worm in the apple. As many people assume, they figure, well, that worm must have burrowed its way into the apple, and then it just goes and, and enjoys as much as it can until somebody spoils all of its fun. When in reality, that's not how the worm got there. The reality is that, that while those apple blossoms were blooming on the tree, uh, a certain kind of fly, a, a moth, comes and it lays eggs on that apple blossom. As the apple fruit then grows, it forms around those eggs. And then when the egg hatches, the worm has plenty of food to sustain it as it grows. So it's not that the worm burrows from the outside in, but that the worm is on the inside burrowing its way out. Isn't that what Jesus was saying? He's saying that's the real source of sin. It's not out there, it's in here. And that sin, its source, is your heart. And that sin worms its way out of your heart and, and reflects itself in our thoughts, and in our words, and in our actions. But that's all that those are, is a reflection of how rotten we really are to the core. And it's essential that we understand that, because if we don't, what we'll end up doing is trying to correct merely a symptom of the problem, which is what the Pharisees were doing. The assumption was, just right your wrongs, just correctly follow the traditions, just do the right things, go through the right motions, and that's the way to correct it. But again, that's merely a symptom of the bigger problem, isn't it? And sometimes we might be inclined to take the same approach. Kind of a monastic view that, that this world is so corrupt and this world is so horrible, so if we can just kind of close ourselves out from the world and, and, and set ourselves apart, then that negative, evil, wicked world won't influence us at all. That's what the monks thought. The reality, though, was that they carried their rotten hearts with them wherever they went, so they couldn't escape that wickedness. And if we think that the problems are merely external or a lack of outward obedience, then we might be inclined to, to just try and have some sort of system in place to check our behavior. Maybe if cussing is a problem, you have a swear jar. Because, you know, financially you're going to take a hit if you keep letting those four-letter words fly and you have to put a dollar in every time. Or you might read some self-help book that's going to adjust or correct your behavior. Or you might take some online course that's going to help you be a better fill-in-the-blank. And, and, and it's not that those things are, are necessarily bad things at all. Sometimes we do need to check 
the influence that the world has around us. And we do want to grow and, and adjust and keep our behavior in check. The, the problem is that, that those are just a symptom of the bigger issue. And if we're only treating the symptoms, we'll miss out on the bigger issue, the real issue, which is, in fact, the heart. You see, if we don't recognize that, we end up doing something kind of like this. Uh, if you have printed off a, an essay or a paper or a, a resume, something that you have to hand in, you, you're on your laptop, you type away, ah, you're done, and you hit print, and then it comes out of the printer, you pull it off, and, and you edit it, you proofread it maybe one more time before you hand it in, and it, oh, you notice a mistake. Well, what do you do? Of course, you grab your pen and your whiteout, and you take that document, and you, you white it out, and then you write in the correct answer, and then you go back to your laptop and hit print, and out comes a corrected copy, right? All clean and nice, now it's, oh, no, there it still is. So you grab your whiteout again and say, I must not have taken, I'll white it out, and I'll grab my pen, and I'll make the correction, and you go back to your laptop, and you hit print, and out comes the clean copy, right? Correct? No. You have to go to the source to correct it, don't you? The typo is on your laptop. Doesn't matter how many times you want to print it off and white it out, it's always going to come out corrupted or wrong or spelled or whatever mistake it is until you correct it at the source. And that's how it is with our heart. If we focus all our attention on just correcting outward external behavior and not realizing the real issue, then we're never going to be qualified to get the help that we truly need. And it's not until we recognize that the heart is the problem that we're then ready for the real solution. See, when we realize that the heart is the problem, we know that we are powerless to do anything about it. We can't clean our hearts. We can try to do better tomorrow, but we can't ever erase the stain of, of sin that is our past performance and our marred track record. We can't correct the heart. Only Jesus can. And the good news is that Jesus has. In fact, that is the reminder that Scripture gives us time and again that that's exactly why Jesus came. He had a very specific purpose for us. And, and John in his first epistle tells us, Oh, there's a picture of the worm and the apple for you. Go ahead, next one. Then again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. We've established this, right? We are corrupt to the core. Jesus did something about it. Now, next slide. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So... Every stain on your heart, every past sin that you have committed, thought, word, or deed, all sin has been purified in, in Jesus through his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice. Jesus alone has provided what God promised to us through the prophet Ezekiel when he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, it's not a matter of scrubbing away our sin or trying to clean it on our own. We need an entirely new heart, and Jesus is the one who has given that to us. How is that ours? You already know it. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You haven't done anything to deserve it. It's a gift that is yours by faith. 
And when the Apostle Peter was, was preaching a, a sermon uh, at the Jerusalem Council in reference to the Gentiles, he was pointing out to them something pretty exciting that they hadn't known to this point. And he said to them in Acts chapter 15, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And what Peter preached to the Jerusalem council then is the privilege that, that every pastor has of, of preaching to God's people today. The same truth that you have been purified by faith. That is the, the greatest gift that we could be given. This, this rotten, this corrupt, this defiled heart has been made pure through Jesus. And that changes everything because it means that, that our religion, that our relationship with God is not based on our obedience. So dear friends, you can leave the, the rules in the classroom because obedience to the rules is not what determines your status or your standing before God. Christ's obedience, Christ's sacrifice has already determined your status by faith. So as, as tough as it is to swallow, to accept, to own up to the fact that my heart is the problem, we can rejoice at the same time at that grace-filled news that Jesus and only Jesus is the solution. Amen.